April, 1917, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. An unrecognized plane was spotted circling the Portsmouth Naval Yard, which was building submarines for use in the First World War. Rumors of German spies were fresh on everyone's mind, which is why soldiers shot at the unidentified plane, but it escaped. This is not the only strange sighting in southern New Hampshire during the war that allegedly had to do with German spies. For a while, people reported seeing flashing lights coming from mountaintops. These sometimes elicited more flashes from other mountaintops, seemingly a series of secret communications traversing the land in New Hampshire. But what do these rumors have to do with a murder in August of 1918? Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. Today, we explore the murder of Dr. William Dean. This is a study of strange. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Michael May and today we're studying a very, a very strange case of a murder of a Dr. William Dean in New Hampshire in 1918. And with me, uh, Tara looks very excited, is uh, husband and wife, Tara Perry and Jordan Wayne Long. They are filmmakers. Act uh, Tara is also an actress and writer. Jordan is a director and artist and it's so, ma so many other things I can't list but they're both with me today to help. So it's my first time having three people, including myself, on a podcast. Welcome, guys. <laughs> We're delighted you. to be here, Michael May. <laughs> uh, so uh, <laughs> this... <laughs> you guys. Every time I laugh, so does the baby. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, right. Technically, so, uh, there's four people. There, there are four. Uh, your daughter is part of the show. So <laughs> they have a wee little one. So part of having t two of you guys on is actually very helpful in case in case uh, your daughter needs something. So they have a, a newborn with them today in case anybody hears some baby sounds that don't have anything to do with the show. Uh, so you guys, just real quick, we'll just plug a couple of things. Most recently, you guys worked together on Ghosts of the Ozarks that I was fortunate enough to work on too. So everybody check that out. And every, they can pretty much watch that almost everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. You can rent it on any platform mm. and it's also on Tubi with ads. Yeah. So. Yeah, you can see it anywhere. Just Google Ghosts of the Ozarks. Also, uh, Squirrel uh, recently yeah. came out on Tubi. And it's also somewhere else. Too. Yeah. Tubi and Freevee. What is, what is it on? It's going to be on Freevee and Roku coming up. It's just going to expand slowly. Got it. But, uh, so right it's on now you can Tubi. see it on Tubi. Uh, and Squirrel. I'm so excited to have that film out. I know. And Squirrel was actually, uh, this will tie into why I wanted you guys on the show. Because our story takes place in New Hampshire and Jaffrey, New Hampshire, which is very close. Oh, yeah. We love Jaffrey. We've been there. Yeah. Oh. So we, we've cosplayed there. Ooh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do another episode <laughs> about that. We did some we did some LARPing there. It's really Ooh, fun. Ooh, neat. Um, so Jordan's family, or I guess Tara's family too, since you guys are married, owns uh, some property there called the Aldworth Manor in Harrisville, which is just down the road from Jaffrey, New Hampshire. It's where Squirrel was shot. Also, Jordan's done a ton of work up there. You guys vacation up there. Your family's there. I also was up there recently, which I'll get into in a second. But that's why I wanted you guys on this episode, because you can actually lend some insight into what the little towns are like and the communities and 
and all of that good stuff. So I'm I'm really excited about this. Oh, so fun. Did you get to do we some research too. when you were up there last? Is that what you went up there for? You were yes. just getting the, all the answers. I know. Yes, actually, let me, if you don't mind, because I, I actually think that should be part of the story. So I'll tell that how I came across this in just a second. Let me just do some housekeeping, some of the like podcast housekeeping stuff. Of course. Which makes me sound cool. Um, so thank you, everybody that's listened so far and subscribed. If you like this show, if you like these kind of topics, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and you can also learn more on a studyofstrange.com. And at, not while this recording is happening, but when the show comes out, I'm giving a giveaway out on Patreon for anybody that signs up on Patreon for like the next, it's like 60 days. You can read about it on there. Um, if you sign up, you get a free video message from moi. From me, you Ooh. guys, you guys will probably want that because you don't, you don't see me uh, in real life. So, <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, so great. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm actually very excited about that. So, and as of this recording, the show hasn't even been out a week yet. So, thank you to everybody who's been listening. It's been really fun to get some feedback, and people seem to be enjoying themselves. Or everybody's just being. You've nice. done a great job, man. Oh, thank you we, so much. We love watch, listen to him. So, let me tell you why. I wanted to do this episode about Dr. William Dean and his murder. I'll give you the story of how he came across it, because I didn't know this. This is actually not a super well-known story. I came across this story while I was at the Aldworth Manor in Harrisville, New Hampshire, uh, because I was up there helping you guys with a documentary that you're producing. And I'm potentially writing, uh, not potentially, my, myself and our friend Sean were writing a script that would actually take place at Aldworth Manor. So I was doing some research. And while I was there, I procrastinated a little bit one day. And I was like, I'm going to look up it, see if there's any kind of local lore, local legends, local mysteries of the general area in sort of southern New Hampshire uh, for my podcast. And I came across an article that I mentioned in the intro, so you guys haven't heard it. But there's an article that has this, it's like a paragraph or two that talks about this plane that was unidentified flying over the Portsmouth Naval Yard in New Hampshire in 1917. And there was a lot of paranoia about German spies. So the local militia actually fired upon the plane and it kind of escaped inland flying, flying back over land and they never wow. shot it. So that hooked me. And then they tied it into where there was there's spies, there's strange lights that happen that are like signal lights and they tie it into this murder. And <gasps> so I was like, okay, I'm hooked. I'm going to read more about this and see what I can find out. And it actually took me a while. There's not a ton there's a lot of information out there but because it's not super popular it's kind of buried buried in the waves of the web when you search the web and i start reading about it more and i read about dr dean and the stories talk about these strange lights at the top at the top of mount monadnock i always say that wrong so i have to say it slowly no that's perfect yeah so there's lights from the top of Mount Monadnock. There's sort of signal lights. They do various things. And also the the other mountains in the nearby area as well, there's these other signal lights. So it's almost as if people are communicating and no one knows who's doing it. And I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, wait, German spies in New Hampshire? Like that just seems yeah. weird. Yes, yeah, sir. Go ahead, Jordan. No, but... As soon as you say that, it reminds me of Squirrel because <laughs> Matt wrote about like the Hessian soldiers yep. that were there during the Revolutionary War. And there were like a lot of regiments there like fighting. And I'm like, that's just really interesting that all those years later, there's still that connection. I wonder if it has anything to do with the uh, people sticking around. 
Very interesting. You know, it it might be. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that at a certain point in the pod about why this area may have been prominent with some like German sympathizers or German uh, ancestry, like people that are have family from Germany. But when I was at like, wait, why New Hampshire? I looked into that. The Portsmouth Naval Yard, which was mentioned in that article, oh, yeah. it was, they were building submarines for the use of in for the U.S. Army in in World War One. So it was actually a very strategic base. Not only that, but from from the top of Mount Monadnock, you can see Boston on a clear day, and Whoa. it's kind of a perfect corridor from all the mountains in sort of uh, uh, upstate New York through Vermont, New Hampshire, into Maine. It's a perfect place to send messages from inland out to sea to German ships or submarines. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because, I mean, imagine how far that's like a two-hour drive now from Manhattan to Boston. To be able to signal that far. Yeah, yeah, to be able to signal in an instant. Like, oh, my gosh. Also, (laughs) another funny tidbit. Squirrel premiered (laughs) at New Hampshire Film Festival in Portsmouth. Ooh, nice tie-in. It's all come around. <laughs> it's all come around. We drank at a bar called no, the Wilder. It, it's, it makes all the, it's so interesting. Like even in the Revolutionary War, like I lived on the South Shore of Boston and it was in Marshfield and they would like build the ships way inland in the marshes to hide. Oh, interesting. And then they would like create trenches to get the boats out. Whoa. Like, and to hide, you know, their making from the British. So it's really interesting that they're still doing that. In World War Two, I also want a quick note. You you started that you started that little tidbit with uh, back in the Revolutionary War, and then cut to when I lived in Boston. So it sounded like <laughs> you lived in Boston during the Revolutionary War. I'm a I'm a great storyteller. Teller. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, well, so to one be of the things of year old. Yeah, yeah you're, you're looking great, Jordan. You look you look fantastic for your age. Your so your birthday that you just had this week, seventy. Yeah, two hundred and seventy. Yes. Yeah. Well, congratulations on making it that far, and you finally have a, a, a baby. Took you took you a <laughs> Thank while. Thank you. Um, so like anyway, twilight. while while I'm reading about this story, I keep thinking to myself, these lights. They're, they're an embellishment. It's some sort of local legends. It's, I'm going to read about it and find it. It's not really anything. This isn't going to be appropriate for the podcast because there won't be enough there. Uh, I was wrong. Like These lights were a very serious matter, so serious that there were federal agents investigating in New Hampshire and, and around uh, New England. That's what it's called, New England. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, holy holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. And I hadn't even gotten to I, the murder mystery yet. Um, so it was just, it's very fascinating. And I'm so excited to share this story with somebody or some people. Me too. And, and Monadnock, like what a, uh, like that mountain, it's like the second most climbed mountain in the world or something. Yeah. Just because yeah. it's so easy access. It's, when I was, it's just I, wild. And- yeah, when I was up there uh, working on the, the documentary for you guys and we were interviewing this farmer, uh, he actually said it was the most climbed mountain in North America. Oh. I don't know. It, sure, it's oh, in, in the North top. America. Yeah. I yeah. think it's I Mount, America, it's Mount yeah. Fuji and then Mount Monadnock. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and it's more of a hike. It's not, uh, you know, for those interested in climbing, just so you're aware, it's not, you know, hanging off a cliffside. It is, it is more of a, a nice hike. Maybe a hard hike. Indeed. But it's, it's, it's nice. Um, so this story is, uh, it is, I, oh, you could tell by the way I'm talking. My eyes went crossed researching this because oh. there is so much information. There are, thou- I'm pretty sure, thousands of pages of like governmental documents. I read through a grand jury 
uh, uh, inquest, like the whole transcript of the entire trial, old newspaper articles, all this kind of stuff. So my eyes went a little crazy. So hopefully I do a decent job. I, I will have to skip over a lot of information in these episodes, but it's just to actually make sure we don't do 20 episodes of it and just a couple. Um, but what I want to ask listeners out there is if you are intrigued by this story today, uh, write in a study of strange at gmail.com and tell me. And what I'll do is I'll actually reach out to the historical society in Jaffrey that put together most of the information I used to research this. And I'll see if I can get an interview with somebody, something like that, because I the the only bit of information or research I haven't done yet is actually talk to people on the ground there. This is still a very important story to the local regi- residents of Jaffrey. And people have, you know, you guys know the small towns of New Hampshire, everybody's relatives and grandfather, they all knew each other. The same families are still in town. This is a really important story and they want it solved. And so I think they they want people to know about it. Um, so yeah, so if there is intrigue in this this episode, please write in, let me know, and I will do a follow-up of some kind, everybody. So that's awesome. Ah, all right, guys. Let's let's actually dive into it. That was too much information, but I thought it was interesting how I came across it. So I did want to share that. That's really neat. And you it, it's already prompted me like thinking about being on top of Mount Manadnock and thinking about the plane flying. Yeah. Like you can often see planes lower than the mountain when you're like on top. Oh, really? Like, man, what a yeah, yeah. So like Man, it's just fascinating. Let's dig in. Yeah. Have you so you've been up there, huh? Yeah, I've climbed it a couple times and it's it's wild because there's so much forest all around Mount Monadnock, but you can see each you can see the towns, you can see like prominent buildings, you can even see Aldworth from up there. Oh, cool. But it really is when you see lots of Cessnas and stuff will fly, but they'll be lower because they're kind of like sightseeing and stuff. And it's really like Jaffrey is just down below, mm-hmm. you know, uh from the bottom of the mountain. And then it's really just kind of like small New England towns surrounded by forests. So that's kind of like the vibe yeah. of that area. Yeah. And it was fun when I was, uh, when I first read about this, what was so surreal is I was staring at Mount Monadnock out the window. And I was like, wait, that mountain had lights? That was weird signal lights during World War One. Holy shit. Like it was, it was a bit surreal. It was really cool. You'd be able to see that from everywhere. Yeah. 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 Everyone would see it. No wonder there's yeah. so many documentations of it because you can see it from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the whole point I would imagine is they needed a place that people could actually <laughs> see. So, all right, let's dive in. And I'll, I'll start with William Dean, who is the, the sad victim of this case. Um, so a little background on him. He was born in, on February 12th, 1855 in Delaware. Some accounts you'll come across say he was born in Siam, which is modern day Thailand. Um, but he was actually born in Delaware and his family, when he was five, moved to Siam because his father was a reverend and like a missionary to China and Asia. Um, and he actually became friends with the prince of Siam when he was young and living in Siam, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um <laughs> He moved back to the States when he was young and he started being educated by his uncle. A Ooh, that's a baby, everybody. It kind of sounded like a cat. It sounded like a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. um, so he moved back to the States as a kid. He, he started being educated by his uncle, Dr. Henry Dean uh, of New York. And uh, Dr. Dean became a medical student and was studying in New York at the Rochester Hospital an interesting fact of his life is he was actually put in charge of the hospital while he was still a medical student. <laughs> so he was quite a a brilliant a brilliant young man. Wow. However, 
he did not actually go into medicine. He never formally practiced it because he suffered from tuberculosis, which would come and go. And his advice from doctors was to move to the country. And that's actually why he moved from New York to New Hampshire, to Jeffrey, New Hampshire. And he uh, married his first cousin, Mary Dean, more common, more common back then in the 1800s. Yep. <laughs> uh, he was 25. She was older than him by, I think, two or three years. And they lived off of her wealth primarily because I'm pretty sure it was oh, her dad go. who was the, the, the father that uh, his uncle. Dr. Dean. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. A lot of medical debt to wipe away there, I bet. <laughs> yes, yes. So in 1889, he bought what is the former Elijah Smith farm in Jaffrey. And Jaffrey in the early 1900s, it's about 2,000 residents. Today, it's only like 4,000. It's still a, a small town. And, and on the property, they built a bungalow, which that's what they would call it, a bungalow. It's just a, a, a nice house. And then they also built years later, what they called the big house, which is a much nicer house on top of a hill to kind of overlook things and had a nice view of Mount Monadnock. And in, you know, the coming, this is like the 1890s by a, a decade or so later, they actually moved out of the big house, lived in the bungalow, and they would rent the big house out in the summertime. And I don't think this has changed much for like places like Vermont and New Hampshire, but people from Boston, New York, the bigger cities in New England would vacation in places like New Hampshire. And back then they would stay the whole summer. So it wasn't like, oh, you get a hotel room for a week or whatever. They would rent a house, be there all summer long uh, to enjoy the, the beautiful sights of lovely New England. Um, now, Dean was known around town as being a bit peculiar. He was a, a very nice guy, very well respected in town, but he would wear like bright bow ties. His style was different. That just sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a cool you know guy. that's not weird. That's just cool. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's a cool rural guy. farming town, so that's going to stand out. But it doesn't mean anybody was you know had <laughs> they're had not used to personality. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and he also did something very strange for a rural 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 rural. I'm right there with you. There you Don't go. ask me. No, what is it? I forget what show that was. The rural. That's got to be Third Rock from the uh, oh, yeah. 30, 30 Rock. Excuse me. Thirty Rock. Uh, there we go. Uh, so anyway, it, he would milk his cows at noon and midnight, which you don't do when you're a farmer. It was a, just an odd way of living. He would stay up late. He would sleep in in the morning because he's basically living off family wealth and occasionally renting out a home. So he doesn't have to abide by normal schedules. Now, in 1916, a man named Lawrence Colfelt Jr. and his wife, Margaret, and their stepdaughter or his stepdaughter, daughter, Margaret's actual daughter. Uh, they moved to the Jaffrey area. They originally stayed at a, at a different place. And in around 1917, uh, they moved into the Dean's big house. And mm -hmm. how much do I want to share right now about Colfeld? We will we will come back to him, oh, especially like, well, in part like two. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is important. So Colfeld was similarly kind of peculiar in that he didn't have a job. He inherited money from his wealthy grandfather. And people thought he was very strange because of that. Like that just wasn't like a trust fund baby. Today, we would be like, oh, a trust fund baby. But back then it was kind of poo-pooed upon. And also war is a coming by the time he moves to Jaffrey. And so people, when you weren't doing anything to help the community or contributing to society, people really frowned upon that. So yeah, he was considered very unusual. 
His family also stayed in town over the winter, which if you're not local, you do not stay in New Hampshire over the winter. That is, A, it's not fun. (laughs) So why is someone doing that? He doesn't have a job. So why is he there? Um, It was just a very unusual thing to do. Now, accounts say that uh, in May of 1918, Dr. Dean kicked Cole felt out of the big house. And okay. most of what I read says he gave him 24 hours to vacate. I actually have contradictions to that, that he was not given 24 hours, but he was indeed kicked out. And so I'll just leave it at that, that that is something to remember. We will talk about Cole felt uh, much more later on in the show. I like it. Yeah. Now, at the time of William Dean's murder, Dean and his wife were not so much wealthy anymore. They had no steady income for decades now, and it was wartime, uh, and they they just they didn't have a steady income. So that's another reason why it's kind of odd that Dr. Dean kicked out his only source of income, which was his renter, the Colfelds. Also, Mrs. Dean wasn't in her, I don't know how to properly say this, but like her usual capacities anymore at the time of the death. She was suffering from dementia, some kind of dementia. They didn't quite... Yeah. Nail it down specifically back in 1918. Yes. Go ahead, ahead, Jordan. No, this is just a, you're going to want to edit this out. (laughs) You know what I want to say? I'm just giving a warning that they say that like when older, like older ladies get UTIs, it can exhibit itself as dementia like often. And so like, I, I know if that sounds weird, but like- you any older women in your family yeah. who people are like, she just kind of lost her mind one day and it's out yeah. of character or like dementia doesn't run in the family or anything like that get them tested for a UTI because they can't feel the symptoms quite like they used to. And it literally just messes with their brain. That's, yeah. I mean, hey, that's interesting. And look, the medicine wasn't where it is today in 1918. Yeah, it's over yeah. and antibiotic, ago now, so. you know, would bring them to bring them back to normal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so she may, no, have, it's, yeah, she she, may have just had a urinary tract infection, bless her heart. It, Mrs. We, we don't know. But uh, the fact that she wasn't mentally there is a a really important aspect of the case and something that it's a detail that we have to know when we think about what is what is about to come now let me get your opinion guys at knowing the area knowing the small towns of new hampshire what would a a really a brutal murder do to a town like what do you think people would react like what do you think people are going to think yeah what it'd be everything that was talked about for years yeah yeah. I mean, it's it's like small town. Of course, it would be, especially if it's still unsolved, it would still be talked about. I mean, clearly, and it still is. And like if everyone was seeing the lights on, you know, yeah. and it's connected. Yeah. I mean, like, can you imagine how just like terrifying the rumors would be? That I mean, you're you're hitting it on the head. I think you you mentioned rumors, which I will talk about a lot today. Um, yeah. Terrified. Like how do you trust your neighbor after that? Yeah. You know Paranoia. I mean? It could be anyone. Mm hmm. And and still talking about it. They're still talking about it. the whole Jaffrey Historical Society. Again, they're the ones that compiled all this information and all the, the transcripts and all this amazing thing because they, they still want it solved. You know, like yeah. that's that's my feeling of it. I haven't heard it said that specifically, but I would imagine they're doing yeah. this because they want people. That's going to be a great episode. You've got to you got to talk to them. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, so please, everybody write in. Studyofstrangergmail.com. Let me know if you want the me to follow up with The still out there. We have to find it. still out there. <laughs> It's only it's only been 104 years. He might still be alive. Yeah. Or she. Who knows? Okay, so uh before we get into the day of the murder, there are two bit quick bits of gossip that I do want to notate. Uh Dr. Dean 
had told a few people that he had received a threatening letter. We don't know what was in the letter. We don't know who it was from. We don't know what it said. We don't know what the threat was. Dr. Dean, as far as we know, is the only person to ever have read it. No one has ever found it. Also, he apparently approached a local police officer named Lindsay and asked how he could get police protection if he needed it. So those are just two quick bits of, of details that are interesting. Now, he knew something was up. He knew something was up. Now, on the day of the murder, it was August 13th, 1918, and it was around noon, and a Mrs. Morrison, also, side note, you'll, you've probably already noticed this, I keep referring to people as like Mr., Dr., Mrs., that's because almost all the old newspaper articles, the court transcripts, even people today that have written stuff, there's this formal way of referring to people back then that just kind of has has trickled down through the research. So that's the way I think about them now. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, Mrs. Morrison came by the Dean's property, and she was with uh, two other women, Mrs. Harrington and Mrs. Lynch. And they were asking for donations for a type of like rubbish sale to raise money for a local hospital. And it's 1918. The war is not over yet at this point. So their local hospital is very, very important in wartime, obviously, as, as well as any time. So according to Mrs. Morrison's testimony, she said Mr. Dean said that he would love to write her a check, but he couldn't afford to. So he basically offered anything in the house. He's like, yeah, fine stuff. So they picked out some items in the house for the sale. And then Dean suggested that they go over to the big house, which was now empty because he had you know, Cole Felton moved out about a month. Yeah, mm-hmm. a month or so before. So Dr. Dean and Mrs. Morrison walked over to the big house together. The other lady stayed behind with Mrs. Dean. And this is where we get to our first scene, ladies and gentlemen. <gasps> oh, yeah. So if, yeah, if you guys can open up the oh, email I sent you with, uh, it'll be Dean one is what I've called it. Dean one. Let me know when you have it. Oh, I've got it pulled up. Sweet. Um, should we my just glasses keep... on? Oh, there you go. There you go. I love it. You have glasses on, a baby in your lap. This is uh, this is good. Oh, you mean I'm just relaxing in here with my sparkly water? <laughs> okay. Um, so, do you guys want to keep uh, sort of gender norms for casting, or do you want to mix it up? What do you guys want to do? We don't care. Sure. Yeah. No, I can. Oh, do you want me to read for Mrs. Morrison? Yeah. Sure. Sure. So, Tara, you'll be Mrs. Morrison. I'll read the the descriptors the scenes settings and, and things. thick boston accent right real thick that's what you want I mean, stop it right? I mean, back then, back then i have it. i have no idea what they would have sounded like back then to be honest because it good it could have been more of that like oh yeah down the road yeah like it could have been oh, that gosh. i can give i can yeah. give you no idea yeah, you don't <laughs> i can give you that accent you guys are under no obligation to do an accent uh it is up to you see what happens all right you guys ready Yes. Let's see what comes out. All right, here we go. So it's the exterior of the Dean property during the day. Dr. Dean walks alongside Mrs. Morrison up a path towards the big house. About halfway up, Dean stops. Mrs. Ware told me you've seen the lights in this part of the country. Wait, that's that southern. (laughs) Well, you're you're from Arkansas. It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. He's good. All right. Dean, Miss Ware told me you've seen the lights in this part of the country. Have you seen them lately? Yes, Mr. Dean. I saw them last night. About what time? I would say a little after 12. Can you uh, tell me where? So Mrs. Morrison leads Dr. Dean to a point in the yard and points up at Mount Monadnock. Dr. Dean uh, puts a, a few stones and places them at their feet to mark the spot to see the location of the light. 
Miss Morrison, are you ever in communication with anyone who could be of any help with the light? Uh, yes, I am in constant communication with the Boston office. Well, when will you be in Boston next? Tomorrow. Could you do me a favor? Can you get a message to send up one of the best men they have? I want the very best, not just an ordinary man who doesn't know his work. Couldn't you tell me what it is and I will get the message to them? I'll telephone as soon as I'm home. No, no telephones. Miss Morrison, what I know is too dangerous for a woman. I have no right to tell you. <laughs> Why haven't you said anything before? Because I wasn't ready. I wanted to be perfectly sure. Now, the quicker someone comes, the better. I did I really, that went somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it did. So that is, uh, these are actually quotes from Mrs. Morrison's grand jury testimony about the conversation Whoa. she had with Dean. So oh my God. you have the instance of the lights that have been seen from the mountains. She has seen them. I will get to more uh, her a bit later. She actually was working with federal agents about the lights. And uh, yeah, he wanted someone to come investigate right away. And this is soon after he got a but threat. But not a letter. woman. Well, yeah, he couldn't, no, women, it's too, it's too, it's too, uh, yeah, too dangerous. Much too for dangerous. Yeah. So that is the day. And look who died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting scene and scenario that happened between the two of them. Now, where am I in my notes? There I am. I found it. Uh, <laughs> so again, it's August 13th, 1918, the day of the murder. Mo uh, Mrs. Morrison leaves the property and the rest of the day for Dr. Dean went something like this. He continued afternoon chores until the evening. And it's commonly known that he went into the town center of Jaffrey around 8.30 p.m. There was a witness, Alice Burgoyne. I hope I'm saying that right who saw Dean in town around earlier than that at 6.45 or 7, where there was like a town band playing a performance and she saw him there. Whether he was in town earlier than 8.30 or not, I don't know if it matters to the investigation, but I, I want to share it just in case someone else out there figures something out that I haven't. Uh, regardless, he is in town at 8.30 to do shopping for the week. He drove his cart with a horse, just one horse. Most people did not own cars. In that time in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, if they did, they still had a horse and buggy because in the winter they wouldn't use uh, they wouldn't use cars. They would use the horses in the winter. Um, stores in town stayed open till 9 p.m. on Tuesday because Jaffrey is popping on a Tuesday night. That's later That's than they stay late. open yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. So he buys some goods from a few stores, loads item into his carriage, and I'll mention at the grocery store, good nows or good nose. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sure locals to Jaffrey will get mad at me for not knowing. Uh, let me know right in. Uh, his entire bill for a week's worth of food was $3.75. So, uh, yeah, I love that. Love that. <laughs> wow. Uh, That's great. He then went to the Dunk Duncan's drugstore. It was around 845. <laughs> and I should say there are a lot of witnesses because people are in town. So, like, this isn't just like, you know, some some hearsay about what he was doing like there's a lot of witnesses for his shopping new england runs on duncan there you go there you go nice plug duncan donuts please sponsor the show <laughs> so in the drugstore he runs into mrs or excuse me mr charles rich's sister-in-law georgiana hodgkins mr rich we're yeah. also going to talk a lot about today uh he's a good friend of dr dean's he worked at the local bank as a cashier and he was also a magistrate for the court in a lot of the articles from back then and today, he's referred to as Judge Rich. He's he was not Whoa. a judge. He had like a ceremonial oh. title in the court, uh, but a respected a respected man around town. 
And Georgiana Hudgens, who's in the the drugstore with Dr. Dean, uh, it's his sister-in-law, and she was staying in town for like the summer or something like that. Dr. Dean and Georgiana started talking. People saw them talking and you know hanging out a little. They knew each other very well. And Dr. Dean offered to give her a ride back to Mr. Rich's house that evening where she was staying. They left apparently a few minutes before 9 p.m. or a few minutes after, depending on which witness you talk to, but around 9. And Dean was in town. This may not matter either, but I find it interesting. He was in town asking for batteries. So like every store he went to, he wanted to find batteries for his flashlight because getting home on the <laughs> horse and buggy, there's no there's no headlights on those things. There's no street lights outside. I'm he just amazed the that they had batteries in 1915. Yeah. Why didn't I think well, they had batteries that you could buy at the store? Well, apparently not because he couldn't find any. So he was well, asking true, around yeah. for them. So it was just harder to <laughs> He's get. He's a time traveler. Everyone's like, what the hell is he talking yeah. about? Batteries. <laughs> He couldn't just um, have a flame with like a silver bowl behind it that, you know. I mean, I mean, a lot of. He really got did. himself into trouble. Like I can, the Egyptians? I can, I can see the story already. He tries to like. he was asking he, for it? He, no, no. What I'm saying though, I can see where this guy's going. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get these lights. I'm going to talk to these guys, figure out what's going on, get abducted. And, you know, it just goes south from there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. He wanted the lights to communicate potentially. Who knows? According to Miss Hodgkins, uh, who we gave the ride to, and the cashier at the drugstore, Dean drove Hodgkins back to Mr. Rich's house. They arrive just a minute or so later, as it wasn't far away, and Mr. Rich was apparently in his kitchen heating water to treat a wound to his eye. So the common story here is that he told people that his horse had kicked him. And it's often confused. People think the horse kicked him in the eye. That's actually not the case. It kicked him like somewhere in the chest or stomach, and he was carrying a basket and he had a pipe in his mouth and like he flung up and like the basket hit the pipe pipe hits his eye gives him a wound of some kind um yeah a horse kicks you in the eye you're not heating up water in the kitchen no you're 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 either dead or you're getting a doctor um so yes my dad got kicked in the teeth one time and lost his upper lip but they put it back on I don't. I don't know how to reply to that. That's what's so funny. Good, good, good for him. Good for Roger. Good on. Good on. Good on him. I'm really glad. It, I'm really glad they put it back too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. But man, that would hurt. Regardless, that would hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Right definitely. The chest. Okay. Um, I have a question. I have a, I have yeah. a question. Uh, who gave him a ride back? Oh no, uh, Doctor Dean gave Miss Georgiana Hodgkins a ride to okay. Mister Rich's house, and Mister gotcha, Rich gotcha, is the gotcha. one with the eye. Yep. So it was no. On please the please way. ask but, those yes, questions. Yeah. Okay. Can't. Can I ask why he was boiling water? How was that going to help his I, eyeball? I don't know. I don't know. It's and 1918. Actually, it's 1918. He got kicked in the chest. He was confused. <laughs> he, he might have been. Actually, he does have a, an anecdote or a story that he told people is that uh, Dr. Dean was on like the patio or porch with Georgiana and, and Mrs. Rich. And he went out and said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not talking so much because I'm trying to treat this wound. And Dr. Dean had studied medicine, obviously. And he told him alcohol would do better than water. Both on the outside and inside as well. <laughs> it's made a little ah. joke that he should. He should have he was, maybe he was a just cocktail. sterilizing. Maybe he was heating water up to sterilize something. And he's like, maybe, you know what? Maybe. Alcohol's better. Um, so the riches claim that Dr. Dean stayed, hung out for a while, and left around 11 p.m. I will say, because there's a lot of talk about times, and you're going to hear times from me, you already have. People are like, oh, well, this couldn't have happened because of this time and then this exact moment, blah, blah, blah. All these are witness accounts. Witnesses never remember these things specifically. Also, it's 1918. 
not everybody has a watch. Not everybody had a pocket watch. There were clocks and things, but not everybody had them everywhere. No one has an iPhone to check. So everybody just guesses when they say, oh, around 11, around 1030, around 930. And that's just important to note when I try to deduce what is going on. So Dean heads home around 11. He speaks to his wife when he gets home. He eats uh, some currant buns that he had bought in town, had a glass of milk. And then- Sounds like me. There you go. (laughs) And then he wanted to go milk his cow. So he takes his lantern. He tells Mrs. Dean he's going up to the barn and milks his cow. Remember, he milks late At midnight. Milks at midnight. And he goes off to milk the cow. Mrs. Dean waits for him. Apparently, she prepared some food for him. And she's waiting and waiting and waiting. Hours go by. He's not coming home. She starts to panic, but she doesn't want to go up to the barn herself. It is like, it's a bit of a hike up to the barn. I mean, it's not far away, but it's not like just out the door. It is. And there are. There yeah. are creatures. There are critters in New Hampshire. There's bears yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So I understand. Absolutely. She could have been scared. Yeah. So at 7.30 a.m. the next morning, a young man named Arthur Smith arrived at the Dean farm. He had been hired to mow hay for the Deans. And Mrs. Dean ran out to him in a panic saying, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Dean is dead and he's in the barn. Uh, I'm not sure why or what Arthur did next, but I do imagine he checked the barn, didn't find a dead body. Mrs. Dean had checked the barn herself at 5 a.m. And all she had found was the lantern and the oil had been burnt out, but she didn't find anything. Around 8 a.m., Mrs. Dean calls a neighbor, Martin Garfield. And she told Garfield she's searched. She can't find Dean. She's in a panic. She's in, you know, really frantic. And Garfield contacted others for assistance. And by 10 a.m., William Coolidge and Peter Hogan, who were Jaffrey select men. I will also pause. I had to look this up. I'm not from New England. Selectmen are like town council. So mm-hmm. it's it's oh. the local authorities in town. Uh, it's, apparently, it's a very New England thing, and I, I had never heard of it. It is, yeah. yeah. And then also, uh, Pearly Enos, who was the acting chief of police, the three of them had arrived. They were all searching, trying to figure out what was going on. Garfield and his sons were also at the Dean property to help. And on the property, there is a cistern in the ground. I think it's like 100 <gasps> feet, 200 feet away from the barn. Oh, it's very low in the ground, has a heavy sort of circular top to it. And at some point in time, they decided to search the cistern and it took a lot of work. They had to get a pole and a hook and, and dig around in there. And at the bottom of about six feet of water, they found a body. <gasps> so here is a quote from Mr. Garfield, as reported by uh, Bert Ford, who is a, a, a journalist that compiled articles in the 1920s for a book on the case. Uh, So here's his quote. We continued hunting around and went up to the barn again, and we happened to sit down on the barn steps. And the first thing my boy saw was a piece of Timothy hay covered in blood. We then noticed blood on the step and the doorknob. About this time, the selectmen, Hogan and Coolidge and Pearly Enos. Then we started off to hunt again, and it was agreed to look in the cistern and wells. This was about noon. I went down by the wall and got a pole and went up and took the cover off the cistern and I put the pole down in this and soon felt a bag with a stone in it. After discovering the object in the well to be a body, we bit it back and covered over the cistern and the selectmen went for authorities. That was a longer quote than I realized. Um, (laughs) So they covered it up, which I don't know if that's smart or not. I mean, probably it's better to not disturb a body. You know, but it's already in water and they don't know if it's Dean or not. Like, yeah, it's just interesting that they waited for the authorities to pull it up. 
And they found a bag yeah. with a stone in it. So like maybe you yeah. can a weapon. Yeah. Well, I, I'll, I'll explain that in just a second. So authorities arrived around two, including Mr. Pickard, who is the county solicitor. And they were able to get the body out. It took like an hour and a half. And they found it covered in a horse blanket. It, the head was also additionally covered with a burlap bag. Uh, his hands were tied behind his back. His knees were tied. There was a rope found around his neck. And it was Dr. William Dean. They also discovered he had a massive head injury, like some, somebody hit him really hard with something heavy. And the horse blanket is thought to have been covered around him to actually stop blood from getting over absolutely everything. I should also mention there was a 27 and a half pound rock in the burlap bag that helped weigh the body down in the water in the cistern. Woo. So, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't aliens. It was not. I don't think aliens would use burlap. Doesn't That's... sound like a suicide situation. <laughs> no, uh, no. And also, depending on how big he was, like, could a single person carry him and, like, walk him to the cistern and dump him in there? You, you know are, I mean? Or is that like you a, are thinking a the wrong, situation? You were thinking the right things. Uh, right. Yes, I, we, we will get into this probably more in part two, but I think it had to be more than one person. I'll yeah. share more of my personal thoughts later. But yeah, yeah you had to and have carried And they knew him. it was going to be milking at midnight. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it definitely seems like they knew the property because it's like, yeah, yeah we'll just yeah. put a big old rock in a burlap bag and sink him in the cistern. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're, you guys and I are on the same page. Did I win? You win. Oh, good. Okay, Episode good. over. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, this has been a study of strange brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, so, so here's what was also found at the scene. There was a hairpin found on the ground. I, you can't definitively connect it to the murder, though. Uh, there was blood on the entryway, the sort of steps into the barn. There's blood on the door handle to the barn. There's some blood, very little bit sort of spattered in, in the grass and hay nearby. A cigarette case was found in the cistern. Uh, now, there's a lot of hearsay about the case. There's a lot of articles. There's a lot of rumors. It's hard to differentiate what was actually found and what people in town just kind of talked about over the years. However, apparently it was not Dean's cigarette case, so it could have belonged to a murderer. Um, It was also not the brand of cigarettes that Dr. Dean would smoke. He would roll his own cigarettes, and I guess in the cigarette case was a a brand of cigarette. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Tara. Were you going to say something? Or were you just What brand of cigarettes? I was just going to say, my luckies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those um, of cigarettes in good question, Jordan, but I actually don't know, and I don't know if I ever read if they mention what brand of cigarette. That is a good question. Yeah, I mean, small town, honestly, it's like mm-hmm. it's such a mm-hmm. big clue. The milk pail that Dean had carried out to milk his cows has never been found. So that's interesting. Also, no murder weapon has ever been found, or not murder weapon because he was actually strangled to death, but the thing that hit him on the head. Some people think they found it, but it's not. It's never been definitively proven or found. And it wouldn't have been the rock. Uh, no, apparently it's not the rock. That was to weigh him down. Yeah, yeah apparently it's you... not the rock. I thought that too. Okay. Yeah, uh, and and maybe it was. I mean, look, it's been a hundred years. Criminal investigation tools, science, all this has improved. That's one of the, I mean, the I guess like annoying the things. Bucket. The milk bucket could have been the weapon. To be Had honest, to be. I mean, that's a, those things are not light. That is something I've That's thought about, I, and that may lend some theories there to why they never found it and why they, whoever killed him took it. 
Mm-hmm. Because if it's got evidence on it that it was used as a as a weapon, they may want to. But what, in, take it away. in 1918, what kind of evidence would that be? Like, if they don't, so look they for could do fingerprints. They can't. Yeah, oh, they can do fingerprints. Okay. It just wasn't as good as it is now. But yeah, they could search for fingerprints. You just can't do DNA. Um, sure. But they could do a, a lot of other things. Now, as far as we know, nothing was stolen from the barn. Nothing was stolen from the big house, which was empty. No one was renting at the time. Uh, motive is a question. And it's obviously important. And my theory and your guys' theory, the motive kind of ties into those, which is fun, which we'll get to later. It has been theorized that whoever did this knew that Dean would be milking his cows late at night, like Tara said, knew his habits. And also my point of the cistern, and I think, Tara, you said it too, to know the cistern is there because that can't be easy to see at night. And know how to open it and use it. Yeah. So the wound on his head, it hit his left temple region. And it left like a bit of like a triangle shape in his head. And the, th- the thought is, is that it did not kill him because the rope found around his neck did strangle him and it strangled, they strangled him hard enough that it broke a vertebrae. So oh. it was, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Not, not, not fun, not pretty. A- an autopsy did take place, uh, though later it was not right away. And they did find the current buns and milk and they estimated through that, through the dig- digestion pattern, that he would have died between 11.15 and 11.30, somewhere in that range. Whoa, that is closer than I thought they'd yeah, be able to tell. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, and I, I don't know how exact they were back then. Nope, but I'm taking your word for yeah, it. There we go. <laughs> That's what they said. No, I mean, I mean, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's had to be yeah. close to midnight. It's a little earlier than midnight, yeah. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He went out so early So some days night. later... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so some days later, a man named Charles Bean uh, searched the barn and found a kind of a weeder hand cultivator is the way it's described. So something you you know you hit in the ground and eventually plant things in. Uh, it was found under a stone wall. I cannot find out what stone wall he means when he says he found it there. He claims that it could have been the weapon and he claims that blood and hair was on it. But the investigators kind of wrote it off. So I don't know if he was mistaken. And investigators kind of were like, no, that's that's good. Thank you for finding this. But that's not it. Um, it's just, it's a hundred years, you know, so I don't know enough about that to also definitively say, and we'll do a scene later about that. Now theories, as you can imagine, started immediately and we'll dig in more into those in part two. Mrs. Dean though, became a suspect right away. I, I don't, I don't judge people too harshly for thinking of that right away because you do look at the spouse immediately after a murder. But she was um, not in her full capacity, right? She was not in her full capacity. I will actually share a story right now because I was thinking about this when people, including myself, and we'll get more into this in part two, about why she probably wasn't the killer. And a lot of that has to do with physicality and the amount of strength that would take. And she's late 60s when this happens. I had a neighbor growing up who suffered from dementia, and her relatives found that she had ripped all of the kitchen cabinets off the hinges. So I do think that there is a thing that can happen with like adrenaline yes. that suddenly gives you a lot of strength. I was about yeah. to actually say that like, you know, sometimes at, at, if you go visit someone at a, at a home and that is their mm-hmm. ailment, they can say like, be very careful because they're very strong. Yes. It was actually- but do you think a spouse would kill somebody that systematically like tie their hands behind their back? And like- I don't. I don't. That's why I, 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 I but- write it off pretty easily. But yes, it is. It's worth kind of notating. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see if some, if, especially if you swung something and hit someone in the head, obviously they'd have to be right-handed if it's from their, on the left side, right, typically, uh, that 
you wouldn't be able to hang them because they'd be too heavy. But if you pulled a rope hard enough, like you wouldn't have to be that big or strong to do that, right? Yeah, that's a good question. But it would need they would need a second person because she wouldn't be able to. Yeah. She definitely wouldn't be able to hoist him up and throw them yeah. into the cistern. I mean, let me let I'm going to uh, I was going to do this in part two, but let's kind of dive into her. I think we have plenty of time to do this because it doesn't take a lot. But one of the things I was going to talk about in part two is the the kind of the bricks that were around the cistern that held the the lid on top were loose. And if someone dragged a body, it actually would have knocked them over, apparently. So someone uh, had to lift up Dr. Yeah. Dean to drop him into it. And so I do think no matter how strong someone is at that stage, I don't think that's plausible for her. Mm-hmm. Um, also, motive, I know she, she's suffering from, from a, a degenerative mental state, but they were a loving couple. People talked about how much they loved each other. There are rumors that Dr. Dean was seeing other ladies in town. But when you actually talk to people that were close to them, they're like, no, no, they were... He was so devoted to his wife and her to him. Like it was, it's not a thing at all. So I think family man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he kind of was, and, and he took care of her. Like she was suffering. I don't know when her, her dementia settled in, but he had been taking care of her for a long time and he showed no signs of wanting to slow down or, or stop how they live their life. And, um, I think it's his cousin or nephew or somebody talked about how much that he talked about her and, would miss her when they weren't together and all this kind of loving stuff. So I just don't see a motive. Also no money motive, which can happen between couples. Yeah. They, they did not have money at the time. He didn't have life inheritance, you know, like, or, or life insurance or an inheritance that she would have gotten. And same with her. It's not like she was protecting herself from anything. Um, so no, it's just, I, I think I do not think it's her. But yeah, I was going to talk about that in part two, but I, I think it's so easy to write her off. And yeah. there's a lot of people have talked about how the county solicitor, Mr. Pickard, uh, targeted her and wanted her to be the murderer. And when the grand jury inquest kind of targets her, that's not true. I read through the inquest. I don't think he did target her. And he even admitted in his own testimony in it that he's like, no, I don't think she could have done it. So I, I think it's like local rumors that that go into these old newspaper articles that kind of roll into other things that he yeah. like wanted to put it on her. And he was even like, no, after learning, you know, investigating and looking at more of the evidence, I don't think she could have done it as much as the theory it did exist She's and safe. does exist in some people's mind. Yeah, I don't think it's her. So uh, one of the pe- first people on the scene, I'm going to rephrase that. One of the people on the scene immediately assumed that German spies got to Dean. So this was such paranoia because of the lights, because of the war. Oh. People did immediately think they got him. He, he saw something. I'm with this guy. He, he heard something. I'm with this person. He got him. Uh, Mr. Rich, his friend whose house he had visited the night before, uh, arrived at the scene that day too, fresh with his black eye. And what we'll find is that there are conflicting witness accounts with Dean's comings and goings from Mr. Rich's house the night before. Some people say Dr. Dean never went to Mr. Rich's house. Others say yes. But Dean and Rich's family are the only people to have seen Rich with his black eye before he showed up at the scene of the crime. And the only people that could corroborate, oh, he did get kicked by a horse and that's how it happened. And Dr. Dean, being one of those witnesses, is now dead and cannot corroborate that he was kicked by a horse. The thought being that Rich got the black eye while in a fight 
with Dr. Dean during the murder. But I thought his wife, his wife isn't a credible witness. Yeah, but I think some people don't consider her credible because she's like, the wife and she him. wants to practice him. Yeah. Um, but it is a rumor and people believed it wholeheartedly. And still to this day, there are some people that consider him the prime suspect. So That's Mr. Great. Rich did become one of the prime suspects, as I just said, still is to this day. In fact, a grand jury inquest, which I have talked about already, was held in April of the following year. Notes were transcribed from that inquest by Margaret Bean, whose family is still very prominent in Jaffrey. In the 1970s, she actually found the, the court reporter's notes and spent years translating them into this document that we now have that I have yeah. read all of. And it took a very long time, <laughs> uh, which people can find online if they're interested. Um, so in this grand jury inquest, I think it happened because the public wanted something to happen and the investigation yeah, wasn't really town, getting it's scary. Anywhere. Yeah. You want someone so I think, to be able to answer for it. Yeah. So I think there was pressure to have this grand jury inquest, which was like, hey, here's here's some suspects. Here's some things. Do you jury people think we have a case? And they eventually said no. Yeah, Jordan, go ahead. How long had Dean and Rich been friends before this? For many years. Uh, I don't know the many exact years. date, but they Dean had lived in town since the eighteen late 1880s. And I think Mr. Rich had been there his whole life, if I remember correctly. So they had, they've known each other a very long time. So Whoa. meanwhile. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tara. Yeah. What oh, were you no, going to no. say? I, uh, no, I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the guy who rented his house. I was just thinking. Yeah. Cole Felt. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we're going to get we're going to get into that. OK. Yeah. I was like, we're going to get so, back to him. So I won't ask now. Yeah, the, the grand jury inquest was conducted by New Hampshire Attorney General Oscar, Oscar L. Young and Cheshire County Solicitor uh, Roy Pickard, who I've already mentioned he was there on the day the body was found. The findings were inconclusive. And at the end of the trial, they basically just determined, yeah, Dean was murdered by someone unknown. That was their, oh. that was their finding. Yeah, I could have figured it out. The guy, ugh. Yeah. I feel like I'm with y'all. The trust fund baby... Staying over the winter, which is so unnormal, not having a job, was definitely a spy. Right? And like, yeah, because of course he is. Because, listen, he's a rich boy why would you stay there? who doesn't have to work, and he's bored because he doesn't have anything to do. So he's like, you know what's intriguing? He's been in the cigar parlors of Boston. Someone comes in, <laughs> recruits him. He's like, I want a life like this. This is adventurous. Did you know, you I don't have anything pilot? else going on. I did. Okay, okay. Cigar parlor. Right next to the Boston Police Department. <laughs> Wait, so, okay, did... Okay, I'm sorry. We're going to get to him in part two. Meanwhile, I'll go into this. The day Dr. Dean was found dead, Mrs. Morrison, who you guys did the scene with, was in Boston, and she did not know that Dr. Dean had been murdered. And she actually went into the Department of Justice, the local office. I believe it was actually the International Division of the Department of Justice. And she brought the message that Dean had left her that someone should come up to investigate in Jaffrey, that something had happened. He had found something. The only thing was they already had agents in the area. And not only that, Mrs. Morrison had helped some of them already. And they were familiar with not only people in Jaffrey, but the Dean property itself. Dun, dun, dun. Because the guy renting his house was a spy. We will. Absolutely. We will and they were trying to figure out. out. So that is where we're going to end part one, ladies what? and gentlemen. This is so fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. This, the, the DOJ nice files. Job, Michael. Oh, thank you. Uh, the FBI files, it was, it was actually 
the Bureau of Investigation back then, I believe. I, I, it's actually confusing to find out who exactly was investigating because locals refer to it as a Department of Justice, which they're in charge of. But I do think it was specifically the Bureau of Investigation. If I'm wrong, if people know more specifically who was investigating, let me know. But the files from the investigations are part of the FBI files today because um, they didn't exist back then. Uh, and there are, oh man, they, it's so much fun to read them. It, it, and that's where my eyes went crossed researching yeah. because they're also not always in order. So you're, you're reading stuff like out of order. It's, it's really confusing, but it is fascinating. So next week, we're going to look into the prime suspects, the contradictions of witnesses, and we're also going to dive into the spy lights, the, the signal lights from the mountains oh. of New Hampshire. And we're also going to throw in a goofy con man, psychological criminal, as he called himself, uh, a very annoying witness that uh, we're going to talk about as well, just for fun. So thank you both oh, for being great. on. And we will continue this. Everybody tune in next week. <laughs> you love it's it. So cool. No, I mean, like, this is so funny. Because his house was on the hill, right? The big, big manor house mm -hmm, was up mm -hmm. on the hill. So that had yeah. a good vantage point. And of course, yeah. Dr. Dean found out and was like, dude, you can't be a spy and live in my house. Get get out of here. And if Miss, Mrs. Morrison, like, if they already knew that, like, that Dean property, like, 100%, 100%. And it's it's got to be that guy. And, like, I was like, if Rich hadn't been a friend for that long, I'm like, that guy maybe could have, like, been doing that on purpose and befriended him on purpose but if they've been friends that long it's got to be the guy in the house no one stays over the winter in new well, england yeah, dude, was he and it. i know we're gonna we're gonna ask about this next but it, uh, the next episode but is he did he have a lot of friends in the area oh uh, which one mr rich mr the Dean, guy who or was the, renting uh, colfelt uh yeah. colfelt, not, colfelt. not necessarily not necessarily like he so did what but he was wasn't he doing in the winter holiday we will find out after these messages, or, you know, thank you and tune in next week to hear our conclusion of the strange murder of Dr. William Dean. Again, thank you to Tara and Jordan. They'll be here as we conclude the show as well. Check out their films, Ghost of the Ozarks and Squirrel. And as I said at the top of the show, we have a special video giveaway for anybody that signs up on Patreon over the next 60 days. Check that out at astudyofstrange.com. Follow us on Instagram, studyofstrange. And please, if you enjoy anything about this show, you all know how hard it is for a new podcast to get off the ground. It really means a lot and helps the show a lot to just subscribe, rate, and review. If you can indeed rate and review on whatever app you're listening to this on, but definitely please subscribe. And thank you to everybody else that's already tuned in and helped us get off the ground. I look forward to telling you the rest of the story in part two. Thank you. Good night.